When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me. Billy Joel. Hello. Before we get into today's episode, Tom and I have a little message for you. We certainly do, Katie. And the message is this. Our last competition went down so well, we're going to do another one. Mm -hmm. So this is your chance to win some merch and win big. (laughs) This time we're asking you to spread the fire. All you need to do is go to our socials, Twitter and Instagram, and make sure you're following us at Spread That Fire, and then get creative. You could upload a photo showing us why you love it, or where you listen to it, you could get a facial tattoo of Katie on one cheek and me on the other. Mm, Which cheek? That's what I want to know. I would suggest perhaps an interpretive dance that you film. Just be creative, because we're bribing you. I mean, there's a prize. We will pick two winners, our favorite slash the most creative or funniest fire spreader. Plus, there'll be a random winner as well because, you know, we're nice like that. Oh, we have a Katie. These two lucky people will win, get this, our entire merch bundle. Let's go through that. One of Katie's legendary damp cloth utopia tea towels, a poster specially signed by both Katie and me, a beautiful fire bookmark crammed with fire quotes, and cartoons of our favorite fire lyrics, and a silky soft t-shirt in your size. You can see all the designs at spreadthatfire.com. Just make sure that you tag at Spread That Fire on Twitter or Insta and that you're following us. The competition is open as soon as Katie makes this klaxon noise. Kahooga! And you have got until Monday the 13th of June. So get those creative juices flowing. Alrighty, on with today's episode. <laughs> Buddy Holly. That'll be the day. That day is today. It's Buddy Holly time. Hello again, and welcome to episode 68 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast based on Billy Joel's pop opus that sets the syllabus to school us on the headlines, heroes, and villains of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. And I'm Tom Fordyce. Tom, how did we get to where we are today? Billy Joel thinks it might have something to do with Buddy Holly. Oh, Katie, I bet he does. How could he not, as a rock and roll musician, how could he not think it would have something to do with the man who probably looks less like a rock and roll star than anyone else of the era? Yeah, I know. And the thing is, I was first pretty much cognizant of music after Buddy's time. I'm younger. And um, I really learned about him sort of it was a pop culture reference once removed the song by Don McLean that came out in the early 70s called American Pie that referenced the plane crash that killed Buddy Holly along with Richie Valens and the Big Bopper and he called that the day the music died did you remember that song very much so Katie I think anyone who's ever had ears has at least once heard Don McLean's American Pie <laughs> as it as it goes on for like I don't know <laughs> exactly. eight and a half minutes nine minutes and it actually was the second single I ever bought I think I was about nine years old or something and uh, I do remember in my fourth grade class my teacher Mrs. Cum. K-U-M-M, probably. The poor poor woman. (laughs) It's probably the oldest uh, kids that uh, she could ever teach without being uh, ruthlessly uh, riled on that one. But anyway, um, yeah, so Mrs. Come set us a task, which was at the end of the year, we were all to create a little memory book of uh, cutout construction paper that was tied together with pieces of yarn. And then we passed it around to all the other kids in the class and everybody wrote a little 
little like, I'll miss you, have a great summer kind of thing. And because everybody knew that I was on my way to moving to Moscow because my dad was stationed there in the Air Force, um, Tom Butler, who I had a severe crush on, wrote the following, bye-bye, Miss American Pie. If you don't die, God will cry, and so will I. Bye-bye, Miss Russian Queer. And you know what, Tom? Do you know what I understood immediately from reading that? Tom Butler loved me. (laughs) Oh, my God, he loved me. So, uh, you know, I was simultaneously outraged, impressed, and flattered because, you know, it was snappy, it was economical, and, my gosh, it was funny. Yeah, and, of course, to put that word into context, Katie, at the time, when he's talking about Russian queer, he just means you're slightly strange, doesn't he, because you're going to a country he's never been to. There's a whole lot of uh, pejoratives wrapped up in that. But, yeah, basically, he thought I was an oddball, uh, but also he's trying to disguise his nine-year-old need, intense need for me. How about you and Buddy Holly? What are your memories? <laughs> so my memories, the first time I came across Buddy Holly, Katie, was one step removed because the Beatles cover Buddy Holly's words of love on Beatles for Sale. I was a massive Beatles fan from very, very early in my life. So my first experience of Buddy is Paul McCartney doing his best Buddy Holly. But then my dad is a man who believes that popular music stopped moving forward with the release of the Animals cover version of of the House of the Rising Sun in 1963. To him, Buddy Holly is right in the sweet spot. So he would often play Buddy Holly as I got older. And also my mum, my quirky mum, would randomly take songs and song titles, take them out of context and sing them as she walked around the house. And one of them was Buddy Holly's Maybe Baby, which she would sing every time she saw a baby, which because we were Catholic, I was one of five kids, she was one of eight kids. All her brothers and sisters had a huge number of kids. She was singing Maybe Baby. All the time. Complete with a hiccup? Complete with the hiccup, yeah. So that's our experience of Buddy Holly, Katie. I'm glad to say we'll be speaking to someone today who has a far greater level of expertise in Buddy than you and I, and that is Chris Smith. Chris is a professor and chair of musicology and director of the Vernacular Music Centre at Texas Tech University in a town called Lubbock, which we will soon find out is very, very important in Buddy's story. Chris is also, from the look of it, a master musician. Chris, there are so many instruments that you play, there are some that I haven't even heard of before. I'm not sure whether I should be proud of of that fact or rather embarrassed by it. But yes, I do play some esoteric instruments. (laughs) So we're going to talk all about Buddy Holly. We're going to talk about his early days in the town of Lubbock. We're going to talk about his rise to fame. We're going to talk about his tragic early demise because he does only have 18 months of fame in his lifetime. But first of all, Chris, for people who know Buddy, for people who might only come across him occasionally, just tell us why he has such charm. Tell us why he has the hold he does. Us, even all these years later. Well, thanks, uh, Tom and Katie. I'm not sure I could speak to why he's charming, but I am familiar with that really quite common trope that Buddy doesn't look like a rock and roll star. But if you put the horn rim glasses on John Lennon or Hank Marvin from The Shadows upon Paul McCartney himself, he actually looks a whole lot more like a rock and roll star because Buddy looks like a guitar player. He looks like not the fellow who was the captain of the football team. He looks like the guy who stayed home on a Friday night or a Saturday night and sat on the edge of the bed and listened to records and learned how to play the guitar. It's basically the difference between the front man, Qua Mick Jagger, and the guitar player, Qua Keith Richard. Chris, we've already had a, a glimpse into the birth of rock and roll, thanks to Billy Joel, with his inclusion of Johnny Ray in the song Elvis Presley, and he references Rock Around the Clock, Bill Haley and his comments. And uh, with the exception of Elvis, I guess it's hard to, to see from our current vantage point what was exceptional about the somewhat tame early rock sound. I'm trying to get an idea of what was new and different about Buddy Holly. I was looking at some clips of him on the Ed Sullivan show. And was it the first time that the public at large had heard that rockabilly sound in the mainstream? Or was it that idea that he was very accessible with the nerd chic? I think it's possibly a number of factors. I think some of those may be involved, Katie, but I think there are other reasons as well, because we should remember that Rockabilly had been heard already in recordings by Jerry Lee Lewis and by Chuck Berry and quintessentially by Elvis. In fact, Elvis is a huge influence on Buddy, and they actually got to be friends when Elvis came and played in Lubbock. Um, I think that Buddy's appeal was somewhat different uh, because Buddy 
uh, he was a, an extraordinary creator and an extraordinary innovator in a number of different areas. We can get into that in our conversation. But really what Buddy did was Buddy showed how it could be done. He showed a way it could be done. And I think maybe showed a path forward for people who couldn't imagine themselves as Elvis or couldn't imagine themselves as Bo Diddley, but could imagine them as a tall, skinny kid from the hinterlands who wore glasses and played the guitar and and made really made a new set, a whole range of new archetypes for what rock and roll could be in the 1960s. Let's talk Lubbock. So Lubbock is a town in Texas that you know particularly well. Yeah, I, uh, I teach music history and ethnomusicology at Texas Tech University in Lubbock, which was founded in 1923 as Texas Technological College. Um, more saliently to Buddy, Lubbock is Buddy's hometown. His family all came from here. Uh, his uh, primary school, the Roscoe Wilson School, is about a block and a half away from my house in Lubbock, Texas. Um, I've played in the rec- the uh, radio studios that he upon which he hosted programs. Um, I met his family. I met his brothers. We just lost his older brother about a year and a half ago. Um, so it's a he is a he was a I'll, I'll call him a man, but he was a young man of his place and of this place, which in the 1950s was socially politically, especially in terms of theology, a pretty darn conservative place. At the time that he was growing up, there were 200 churches, mostly Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, and Church of Christ. Uh, and there were no bars because it was a dry city. So you had to go out, you had to go out in the county in order to get you some, some beer to drink. <laughs> so he is the youngest of four children. His father, Larry, works in construction. His mother, Ella, is a housewife. It sounds like he had quite an itinerant early life, Chris, in that he had, what, 16, 17 different addresses in Lubbock before he reached manhood? The family moved around a lot, a a bit within the town, but they were all very much embedded as an extended family. They were embedded in the town and people knew them. They were part of what's called here, called the church family uh, in the Baptist church. And uh, so I, I think there was some movement, but I think Buddy is very much of Lubbock and Part of what drove Buddy in his sort of voracious creativity and innovations, the same kind of thing that drove a lot of later Lubbock musicians, which is that as um, I think it was Butch Hancock, who was one member of the Flatlanders, who said, well, you know, in Lubbock, you got to either play music or go crazy. <laughs> and I suspect it was even more the case in the 1950s. And so what drives him, uh, aside from his mental health concerns, to take up the guitar. His whole family were musicians um, and they they had a family band. And so playing music in the Baptist, in the Baptist congregations, it was considered completely okay to play music, but he came up hearing and playing mostly what we would now call country music. Lubbock is a town on the territory band circuit like Kansas City or Oklahoma City where groups like Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys would tour. And so Buddy had the opportunity to hear a lot of music, particularly what we would now call kind of Western swing dance music. And some of his first gigs were in Western swing bands. And talk to us about him meeting Elvis. Yeah, that's a that's a sweet story. And, and you can find just little bits and bobs of uh, footage on YouTube of this. Uh, Elvis played in... Lubbock in 1955, a couple of different times at various nightclubs, at the local uh, county fair coliseum. And uh, so by the time Buddy heard Elvis the second time, I think the second time that Elvis played, Buddy and his his trio actually were influenced by Elvis. And there's a, a bit of footage you can find on YouTube of Buddy and a crowd of uh, high schoolers backstage at Lubbock High School with Elvis, talking to Elvis. What was the conversation? Is there a any archive information about this? Yeah, I there are stories about um, Buddy and his friends taking Elvis around to the after-hours clubs. I don't know that anybody sat down and ever wrote a news story about it. There's a wonderful story here in Lubbock, which I personally, because of my own interest, find quite moving. When Little Richard played in Lubbock, now Little Richard is African-American and a much more flamboyant personality even than Elvis. But when Little Richard played in town, Buddy got to meet Little Richard as well, and they got to chatting. and And Buddy offered to house Richard overnight at his parents' house, so that he wouldn't have to sleep in a, in a cheap hotel room in a segregated town. And that, to me, that anecdote is very indicative of a way that Buddy 
was always reaching further, reaching for more, reaching for more musically, reaching for wider horizons of experience, and especially reaching beyond racial boundaries. I love the idea of Little Richard as a, as a house guest for your conservative mum and, mum and dad. That would be, Katie, quite the house guest. Quite a pyjama party, Tom. <laughs> so I want to geek out a little bit here, Chris, on, first of all, the singing style that, that Buddy develops, which is really, really distinctive. And then let's go into his guitar playing. But first of all, the singing. It's been described as hiccuping. It's unique to Buddy, isn't it? I, Buddy comes out of, I think Buddy comes out of, particularly out of country singing. Um, I'm thinking particularly of Jimmy Rogers and and also of Hank Williams. That hiccuping thing, yeah, that is a, that is a, a funny vocal technique that he employs in a couple of songs. They happen to be a couple of the most, uh, the best known songs. But I think of him as Buddy as really kind of a country singer. And I just have this completely unscientific surmise that that hiccuping thing might possibly evolve from Jimmy Rogers' Blue mm. Yodel. Yeah, it's like a truncated yeah, yodel in a in way. In a way, yeah, I think so. Okay, and then let's talk his guitar style and also his choice of guitar. It sounds like he has borrowed some money quite early in his life from his family to buy a Fender Stratocaster. Now, the Stratocaster is pretty much the rock and roll guitar, yeah, isn't yeah. it? In fact, um, on our Buddy Holly Museum here, which has a number of his instruments and his personal memorabilia donated by people around the town, it ac actually has a bespoke video from Sir Paul McCartney, who came to Lubbock for the opening of the museum. Um, yeah, the Stratocaster was very much a space age kind of guitar. It was very much associated with surf music. Uh, the other rock and rollers didn't play Stratocasters. It was like the Telecaster, which preceded it. It's, an, it's kind of a, it's a country guitar, a guitar that was used in Bakersfield music and used by um, dance band musicians, really. People who needed to be able to play a very stable, solid instrument in relatively high volume situations. And so, yeah, the Strat becomes iconic of Buddy, and it's actually on the wall of the Buddy Holly Museum here in the old train station. And what was his playing style? He has his loud guitar. What does he yeah, do with it? Yeah, it's an amazing thing. I could go on, as Tom said, I could geek out about this for hours. Although, you know, disclaimer, I'm not a specialist in Buddy's guitar style. But what, what I, I think there are a number of ways in which Buddy was, despite the fact that he had this somewhat uh, less flamboyant stage persona than, say, Little Richard or even Elvis, Buddy is absolutely an innovator in a number of ways. And in terms of guitar... Buddy invents the power trio. He invents the idea that you can have a complete band consisting of guitar, bass, and drums. And he plays the way that he does to answer Katie's question. He plays the sort of combined rhythm and lead style, and the, the songs are very much based around these iconic riffs that you can tell Buddy came up with the riff and then wrote the song around the riff, which is a rock and roll strategy as well, right? Keith Richards writes the riff, and then Nick makes up the lyrics, right? Well, that developed for Buddy because Buddy came up playing not even in a trio with guitar, bass, and drums. His earliest musical collaboration was with the drum, drummer J.I. Allison when they were 14, 15 years old. And next door to the museum that's housed in the old train depot, the city purchased and moved the small house and the attached garage in which Buddy and J.I. taught each other how to play. Oh, wow. They were playing guitar and drums and with no bass player, no other accompanying instruments. And so what Buddy figured out was a way to use the guitar in this really very composed, very orchestral fashion, this way of this riff put together this way, these parts put together this way. This is the whole orchestral structure of the song. It's the same way that Eddie and Alex Van Halen learned to play in their family garage in LA, just guitar and drums. And there's a particular way of playing that evolves in which... Buddy is trying to cover all the parts. Yeah, I'm thinking about White Stripes as well, you know, more recently in the indie world, that same thing with the guitar and then the drums. And it's just, it's very skeletal, but very powerful. Yeah, Katie, I think that's really true. And I, I think it's an example of a lot of the ways that rock musicians, pop musicians, vernacular musicians operate. They, they operate to maximize the resources that are available to them. If they only have guitar, bass, and drums, they use guitar, bass, and drums. If they're Elvis's band, if they just have acoustic guitar, electric guitar, and stand-up bass, Bill Black learns a way to play the bass that makes it exceptionally percussive. So it's sort of you know a needs-must kind of situation. 
And uh, But it does lead to this thing where Buddy develops this really orchestral style, which is a huge influence upon people like Hank Marvin in The Shadows, more indirectly, people like George Harrison and The Beatles, um, Jimi Hendrix. You know, These are all people who, who pick up on the idea of the guitar as an orchestral instrument. And that's what I think, that's, I think, one of Buddy's great gifts to, to pop music. Do you want more crowd podcasts? Let me tell you about the Crowd Stories channel. It's where you can find all of Crowd's documentaries. In one place. And for just one pound a week, they're ad-free. Addictive documentaries like American Vigilante. I'm a monster hunter. It's what I do. And Murder in House 2. I know you know what happened. You want to keep it to yourself, you suit yourself. You're going down. Unbelievable investigations into government cover-ups. Your daily reality is the fact that at any moment when the guard comes along, he might just pull out his gun and shoot you in the back of the head. And immerse yourself in the stories of death of a rock star. Just search for Crowd Stories on Apple Podcasts. And hit the subscribe button. See you there. Now, Katie, we've been keeping our fingers crossed. Uh, Chris, do you happen to have an instrument close to hand with you today? I do. Katie, it's happening. <laughs> Chris, what would you be able to show us on your instrument which would tell us more about the style of Buddy Holly? I could give you um, Peggy Sue. That's all just done on your acoustic guitar. So by the time that gets onto the Stratocaster, it has even more intensity, I imagine. Yeah, and in that period, they played on, because they were playing uh, on very, very small sound reinforcement systems, they played on very, very big amps uh, because they were used to playing in clubs where there wasn't much in the way of a PA. And so that would have been this huge sound. And remember that not only did... Buddy learned to play guitar in this drums and guitar duo, but J.I. Allison developed his own drum parts in that same setting. It's again, it's like Eddie and Alex. It's this way of playing where, or or of Jimi Hendrix and Mitch Mitchell. You know, it almost didn't matter who the bass player was. Bass player played a really crucial role, but the bass held things together while this sort of orchestral percussion and guitar thing happens. The same thing happened in Cream with Eric Clapton and and Ginger Baker. It's it's a it's a model for how to think about the trio, and Buddy invented that. And uh, the drummer Ji, uh, he's the drummer on Peggy Sue as well. Yeah, I mean that is incredible. That driving, it's almost like the Burundi drummers' style. It's just so tribal and so forceful and it's so propulsive, and it it's a little kind of punk rock. Yeah, Ji loved to play on the toms, right? That boom, yeah. dum, 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 dum. The, the remarkable thing I think about a lot of pop music on your side of the water as well as mine is that these are people who like jazz musicians before them. They didn't learn this music in school. They had to learn it by ear. They had to invent it. Buddy had huge ears. Buddy is one of the most uh, omnivorous musical m- musical landscapes I've ever imagined. When I first started working on Buddy's music, I found much more in the music than I would have presumed. The influences of Norteño music and Tex-Mex music and German polka music from Central Texas and country music and Western swing, as well as blues and R&B upon which Buddy really cut his teeth. And when he is slinging his guitar and hiccuping and those tom-toms are pounding, what is the audience doing? Like, how are the kids dancing to this? What, how are they responding? Yeah. Well, Buddy's very first gigs were playing for Western swing bands for a a legendary uh, West Texas Western swing band leader called Tommy X Hancock, who just passed a few years ago. Remarkable musician. And Buddy first played in 1949. So they would people would have been dancing um, in the late 40s and early 50s. They would have been dancing Western swing, uh, jitterbugging, especially by the late 50s. There's a wider range of dance styles. And I was just reading a thing the other day 
just parenthetically and contemporaneously that the twist, uh, Chubby Checker's The Twist in the late 50s, is one of the first dances that didn't stipulate that you had to be partnered with somebody. And so you could get up on the dance floor to dance to The Twist or other songs of the period. And you could dance by yourself. You weren't dependent right. on having a, a partner. And that's really kind of transformative. And that also points forward to the 60s, for sure. Yeah, you could individually let your freak flag fly. I love this idea, Katie, of the audiences around the South who are getting, to be honest, an unbelievable musical treat at this, this point because it's not just Elvis. It's not just Jerry Lee Lewis. It's Chuck Berry. It's Gene Vincent. I suppose it's the Everly Brothers as well, Chris. I mean, to be young and out and about at that time. What a gift. Yeah, I think that's another fact. You're absolutely right. It's an incredibly rich time for music. And I'm not one of those old guys who says, oh, it was richer then, it is worse now. <laughs> but I would say that there's a magical moment that happens after the, uh, the Second World War, especially in the States where there's this comparative boom of prosperity, the invention of the social category of the teenager. Marketers only, in, they invent that term in the early 1950s in the States because they recognize there's this entirely new clientele to consume things, including music, especially music on the 45, 45 RPM single, and even more on radio. Because in this period, radio was not constrained by wattage, and so you could have an enormously powerful radio signal coming from Nashville or from Memphis or from Miami. 50,000 watts and audible in Greenland at night. Wow. And what that meant was that kids could hear anything, especially white kids in the suburbs could hear black music. And so the reason that somebody like Buddy in his way or Bob Marley in his way in approximately the same period, they're hearing American R&B and blues from these and country music from these very powerful radio stations in the South. And it's a completely non-segregated space. It's this virtual space where anybody can listen to anything on the transistor radio under the covers at night. So, Chris, I want to talk to you about how did Buddy come to seize the reins of his destiny? What thrusts him into the national sphere? I think that's a really remarkable story, too. He had a bit of a he had a bit of a. Uh, a misfire, or maybe we could call it a false start. He, his first recording sessions in early 1956 were actually in Nashville. There were sort of different attempts by different producers and, and labels to kind of figure out a way to, to package Buddy and put him out there and find him an audience, really. Uh, and it didn't really happen. The thing, One of the things that we is not so apparent about Buddy is that Buddy was an enormously uh, curious highly intelligent and aggressively ambitious person, not an obnoxious person, but he had a, an ambition that was far beyond that of Lubbock, Texas, or even of the, the dance club circuit of the American Southwest. And so it's when Buddy runs into, discovers, develops a relationship with Norman Petty, at, who owned a studio in Clovis, New Mexico, that he kind of hits Buddy Mark II. It's when he puts together his trio. It's when he's with a producer who isn't trying to shoehorn him into a kind of country music kind of approach. And that's that's when things like That'll Be The Day are recorded by Norman Petty. And it's in 19, late 56 and 57 that we kind of, Buddy, Buddy arrives at the, he kind of cracks the code of what it is that he's going to do. Let's get into some of these huge songs then, Chris, because everyone will have their own favourite. It's a remarkable canon to put together in such a short period of time. What are the songs that for you are the game changers, the ones that move it all on? Well, I, I have to say that I didn't come into my current job in Buddy's hometown as a Buddy Holly fan. And so I would not have been so aware of some of some of that music. Some of my favourite stuff of Buddy's is actually quite late, including some of the material that he recorded as demos. Um, when he had moved to New York, he, he recorded the, these pieces as demos. And and he kind of expands his palette. Uh, that'll be the day, of course. It's an, it's an amazing piece of writing, but the guitar part on uh, who do you, uh, I was going to, there's a Freudian slip. There's a Bo Diddleyan slip. Who do you love? AKA not fade away. That's an amazing guitar. Yeah. part, An amazing translation of what Bo Diddley did on his open tune guitar that Buddy adapts and finds a way to um, kind of re reinvent. 
And so over and over again, what Buddy, what I hear Buddy doing when you get deep into his catalog is that he encounters a music and he begins to discover a way that that music style characteristics can be transmuted into an original pop song, which is the same thing that Paul McCartney does so well. For that matter, it's the same thing that the American songwriter Stephen Foster did to hear these very wide range of styles and say that one could work this way and that one could work this way and that one, this one could work this other way. So I like it when Buddy's covering black music, basically, because that's the roots that I share with Buddy. I'm another white boy who loves African-American music. And uh, that's the thing that most, I think that it's African-American music that showed Buddy a way out of Lubbock, Texas, both experientially, also professionally, and also musically. And speaking of taking Coles to Newcastle, Buddy played Seven Nights at the Apollo in Harlem. And uh, apparently the story goes that the audience was a little surprised to find out that he was white, although I think he doesn't sound that soulful necessarily. Do you know anything about this uh, this event? I do a little bit. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll back up just for a second, Katie, and say that, you know, there were people in the black community in Memphis who thought that Elvis was black. So, you know the that that miraculous medium of radio made it possible for people to listen across uh presumed racial boundaries there were a whole lot of people who thought chuck berry was white yeah because this is a as as the writer peter goralnik um this is a world of music sound in the american south which represents what goralnik calls the southern dream of freedom namely and especially the freedom to operate across racial boundaries um, yeah, he played at the Apollo. The Apollo, of course, is the absolute was the absolute epicenter of African American live entertainment. Um, if, if you made it at the Apollo, you could make it anywhere. And if you crashed at the Apollo, you were in a very large company of other people who had crashed at the Apollo. <laughs> James Brown did a remarkable record. I want to say in 1962, I think, called "Live at the Apollo" and LP, which is a phenomenal uh, live recording of someone who absolutely owned the Apollo. James Brown and the Famous Flames. Buddy, Buddy struggled a little bit more, um, but he did. He did. I sus he did something that I suspect, suspect he had done in a lot of dance clubs when he was struggling. When he was having trouble getting across to the Apollo audience, they played. Uh, they played "Not Fade Away," and everybody recognized it as a Bo Diddley tribute. And that's yeah. apparently the song that they came to close their sets with. They would close with "Not Fade Away" because of the Bo Diddley beat. Right. So he's he's kind of a uh, he's sort of pandering in a way, but he's also saying, "Look, I recognize uh, you know my debt." to this tradition and here it is. Yeah, I would say, I don't know if I would quite call it that, you know, because he did what every musician does. He, he adapted to circumstances. And uh, that's one of the kinds of virtuosity that goes unremarked. But if you're a dance band musician, I will tell you, you're a dance band musician playing in uh, rough clubs in the American Southwest in places like Lubbock, Texas and Amarillo, Texas, you you learn how how you can move your thing in the direction that the audience is looking for. And for all that Buddy looked like a kind of nerdy Mr. Science kid, Buddy was a tough kid and Buddy could fight and Buddy was uh, had a lot of, I would say, moral certitude about the path he was following. And it's what took him out of Lubbock, Texas in the teeth of that era's uh, racist presumptions. I was going to ask Chris what it was like for audiences in the United Kingdom when Buddy tours over here in 1958, because if the seeds of rock and roll have already been planted, he has got his watering can out at this point because Paul McCartney will hear him, John Lennon will hear him, Keith Richards will hear him. But based on what you've just said, I almost want to twist that round now. It must have been equally incredible for Buddy Holly, the kid from Lubbock, Texas, to be playing in these places in Europe. Yeah, I, I think so. And you know, I, I, I make no secret of the fact that I think that Buddy had uh, uh, an intellect and a set of ambitions which were going to take him out of Lubbock, Texas, no matter what. So in a sense, I find it, you know, remarkable and lovely to think about Buddy and J.I. and um, Tommy Alsop, their guitar player, and and Joe B. Malden. I, I love the image of these 20-year-old, 21-year-old kids in London and and uh, getting up to the things that 20-year-old young, young men do. Um, but I also think that Buddy, I don't know, he, Buddy had this remarkable capacity to own situations. So when he felt that he was being shortchanged by his record company, he was prepared to take action 
to find out about whether that was that kind of malfeasance was occurring. When it was time for him to change from one record company to another, he did that. When it was time for him to leave his management, he did that. When it was time for him to move to Manhattan, he did that. So Buddy was a citizen of the world, even if it took him until he was 20 to get beyond his own home zip code. Well, talk about him being the master of his destiny and very decisive. When he met Maria Elena Santiago, he proposed on their first date. Yeah, that, that is the story. And, and uh, they were actually quite a good partnership. They had, I think, quite a, sh- quite a clear shared understanding of what they wanted for Buddy's career. And um, another in one of the many ways in which Buddy is a real innovator, in addition to being, you know, I, I'm arguing the inventor of the power trio, in addition to being really one of the very first rock and rollers to write almost all their own songs, in addition to being this orchestral guitar player, in addition to being someone who, like Frank Zappa, would successfully later on, and the Beatles would unsuccessfully later on, Buddy took control of his own catalog. He understood early about controlling um, his copyrights. And I think that that he was kind of a master of his destiny. And you know, I'm not sure that I would advise any 21-year-old young man to propose to a woman on their first date, but I would regard the partnership that he formed with Maria Elena, the brief partnership during his life and in her very long and deep commitment to his catalog since his early death. Um, I think he chose well, and I think that relationship, like so many of the ones I'm talking about, was something that it was about Buddy taking his world outward and to wider horizons. And also it was noteworthy and I guess taboo that she was Puerto Rican and Buddy was white. Yeah, it was, I mean, there was, there was real, there was still, as we sadly know, there's still real racial prejudice in my country, and it's very fierce. Um, it was maybe a little bit more explicit in the 1950s. Um, Maria Elena had trouble. There were, she had trouble with some of the, the longtime Lubbock folks who were like, well, where did he find this woman, and why did he marry her, and, you know, and, and then after his death, you know, there was, there was tension there, because, Maria Elena has taken, she's been very clear about safeguarding his legacy when sometimes people wish to exploit his legacy and she's not having that. Let's move towards the end game because unfortunately for Buddy, it happened so quickly, Chris. You know, this very brief but meteoric rise he has. And it seems to begin around that thing you've discussed, around a desire to safeguard his financial future. He signs up for something called the Winter Dance Party, which is going to be a tour across 24 gigs in the middle of the Midwestern winter. He does it for cash initially, does he? Yeah, he did, uh, although it was very common to play on da- uh, to play on package tours. That's the way that most of the promoters of the period ran their artists careers you didn't you didn't tour solo you toured as part of a package that's how that's how buddy came to the apollo for example um it's also unfortunate that in this period uh no promoter no manager no record company was really thinking we're gonna we're gonna lay a foundation for the long haul with this person we're gonna we're gonna lay the foundation for a four or five decade relationship with this person at this period it was still very much get in get out you know this is another pop music cycle that's going to be a flash in the pan. What made those kinds of tours difficult was when the promoter was trying to cut corners and save costs. And yeah, they were touring in unheated former school buses in the middle of winter in the upper Midwest. And it gets, as someone who's lived there, it gets damn cold. So it's getting colder and colder on this tour. It sounds like the sort of tour that is massive fun when you're watching and massive fun when you're playing. And in between, it really does get pretty brutal. Yeah, it is pretty brutal. And it's hard. It was, it was, Strings of one-nighters, you know, you play one night, you go into a hall, you play one night on your package, you get back out, maybe you get a few hours sleep in a hotel if you're white and can get into a hotel, and then you get back on that damn bus, usually with dirty laundry and cold and bad sleep, and it's it's hard, hard work doing one-nighters was then it is now. So he's on this package tour with Richie Valens, who was famous for La Bamba, the Chicano star, uh, an innovator in his own right, and the Big Bopper, who was famous for Chantilly Lace. Hello, baby. And uh, so they're all on this freezing bus. And talk us through what happens on the night of the fatal plane crash. Well, it's a, you know, you guys referenced uh, 
Don McLean earlier and your your theme man Billy Joel has has referenced this as well. It's a kind of decision that somebody makes when they think I just need to get a couple of hours sleep or I just need to do my laundry or you know there's this terrible story that at least one person on this tour, the Winter Dance Party in January of 1959, at least one person on that tour actually had uh, actually suffered from frostbite because that's how tough the conditions were. And you know, given that given that Buddy and Jay High and Joe B would make the 100 mile drive from Lubbock, Texas, to Clovis, New Mexico, in one hour, <gasps> a 100 mile drive in one hour. What? Yeah, they had this competition. They used to have this competition where they'd get out of the dance gig at, in Lubbock, and they would try to drive fast enough to the New Mexico line where the time zone changed that they could arrive in Clovis before they left from Lubbock. Huh. Well, you know, you're 20 years old, you're driving a giant Cadillac, or you're 20 years old and you're freezing, and people are getting frostbite on a tour bus. You think, sadly, you can think, well, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen? You know, if I get on this plane, get on this plane, I'll have a chance to do some laundry before we do this next gig. Let me get on this plane and go do the laundry and, you know, make sure the hotel rooms are right for my bandmates. So by the time they get there, these things are sorted. And it's the kind of thing you do when you're 20 and you think you're going to live forever. Well, yeah. And the other thing was Buddy was looking out for his guys, the, yes. the, the kids in the band. How did it come to happen that it was Richie Valens and the Big Bopper who took those seats and not his bandmates? Well, the um, Waylon Jennings, who was playing bass, the great Waylon Jennings, arrest in power, who was playing bass for Buddy at this time. And the famous story is that is that uh, there was an argument about who was going to get to fly on this four, little four-seat uh, plane. Um, and Waylon was, was shy about flying. He'd flown before, and he didn't like it. And so he actually gave up his seat to the Big Bopper. And um, I think Richie was always planning to be on that plane, but it may have been another one of those things where it was a little bit of, of sort of like, okay, we'll draw straws, and whoever gets the short straw gets to be on the plane. And, and uh, Buddy, Buddy had said he was going to do that. He was just going to do that. And there were three other seats, and, uh, and that's including the pilot. So that's how that happened. There was... You know, somebody like like Tommy Alsup or Waylon. Waylon looks back, looked back, and and felt tremendously conflicted about the fact that by, on the sake of a five second decision, Waylon was off that plane, and Buddy was on that plane. Chris, this is the first of what unfortunately will be many rock and roll tragic deaths. There, there will be future plane crashes, not least the one which kills Otis Redding. There will be overdoses, there will be accidents, there will be car crashes. What strikes me looking back at this one, as with so many of those later rock and roll deaths, is how preventable it appears to be when you look at the weather conditions the plane takes off in, when you look at the inexperience of the pilot who apparently doesn't even want to fly it, who tries to get a more experienced pilot to take his gig. Yeah, it's um, being a road musician is hard work. Clifford Brown died in a car crash. Bessie Smith died in a car crash. People touring in the South were uh, arrested or beaten or imprisoned. Being being a working musician is hard lines, and at this period, particularly with this sort of boom that you know we're, we're looking at a record business with that's populated by people who had maybe been making decisions for companies since the 1920s or 30s, and so with this new youth boom of music, there's not a lot. They haven't really um, scaled up. The record companies haven't really scaled up to think, oh. We should have a good bus, or we should have an experienced pilot, or we should book days off in the tour, or we should try to take care of the physical health and well-being and safety of these artists, because none of those companies were investing for a 40-year career because nobody thought rock and roll would last 40 or 60 years. And so, you know, corporations cut corners and people suffer. Per what Tom was saying regarding the pilot trying to wriggle out of uh taking this journey was it that the conditions were really bad or that he was an experience or kind of a combination of all those factors yeah well i had not heard that anecdote about the pilot preferring not to fly on that on that night it was bad weather if the weather conditions in the upper midwest in the middle of winter it can be um 
snow or sleet or freezing rain. But what really is, is deadly for a small aircraft is that the cloud cover tends to hang very, very low. So you might get three or four or 500 feet off the ground and you're into cloud cover and you're essentially flying blind. What I did understand is that this pilot was not certified for flying on instruments alone. In other words, he was probably not experienced. I don't want to malign the person's name because I haven't heard this anecdote. But it was not good conditions. It was not an experienced pilot. The pilot was not certified for the kind of flying conditions they were going to experience. And, and it, was a, it was a series of momentary, uh, unfortunate, sad decisions which had a tragic uh, outcome. I, I was born exactly one month prior to this crash. I was born in January of 59, so obviously I have no recollection of it. Um, I will say another thing that uh, your listeners might find uh, appealing. There is an absolutely beautiful eulogy, kind of an extended story, by the American public radio host Garrison Keeler, who hosted a program for years called The Prairie Home Companion. And in his monologue on one of the anniversaries, one of the February 3rd anniversaries, maybe 1989 or so, people could find it on the web. He tells the story of growing up in the Twin Cities and hearing over the radio that Buddy's plane had gone down. And he and his friends, who were probably 13 or 14 or 15 at the time, he and his friends who had their own little band in emulation of Buddy, and they had like a toy keyboard and a guitar and bongos or something like that. They got in their car and they drove from Minnesota, from Minneapolis to Clear Lake, Iowa. And... Uh, it's an incredibly beautiful, very sad eulogy for how much of a sense of possibility that Buddy had symbolized and how in the wake of the crash, there was this dreadful, heart-wrenching sense that those possibilities had disappeared, that those possibilities had literally died. So it's quite beautiful. It's quite moving. Um the 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 news came around different ways. Maria Elena apparently heard it on a on a television broadcast, which must have been a particularly difficult kinds of kind of experience. Um, yeah, it's it's really brutal, but yeah, it's really brutal. And you know, sometimes there are events in the lives of artists, even artists who are functional people. Like Buddy was a functional person. He was a good person. He was not a sociopath. There are these events, or Clifford Brown, the great jazz trumpeter, who's killed at 22 or 23 in a car in a car crash while on the road. And you look at that life and you think, oh my God, that was a good person who was doing good things in the world, who had another 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 years of creativity and joy to offer. And we're not going to get that. And so about the only thing that I can think of in terms of any of these sort of tragic deaths of so many of these musicians who we lost uh, untimely young. The, the only thing I can think of, the only way I can think about it is to think, well, thank you, buddy. Thank you for what you did. Thank you for what you gave us in the time that we had you. The giants of music thank Buddy Holly and Tom Fordyce and I thank you. Christopher Smith, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. I'm happy to chat with you. Okay, so I don't know about you, I really enjoyed finding out more about Buddy Holly because I think, do you know what? I think before I'd underestimated him. I hadn't entirely got it yeah. because he doesn't have Elvis's sneer. He doesn't have the danger of little Richard. No. And, and that conversation has changed my mind. Totally. I mean, the whole idea that he single-handedly set that template for how everybody could put together a rock band. He was um, he was kind of like the starter kit. Grow your own rock band. He was. And to try and bring it full circle, Katie, to the story you told us at the start of the show, I found a little story about Don McLean. So apparently Don was 13 when Buddy Holly died and he was doing a job delivering newspapers in New York City. And it was then on that morning that he read about the widowed bride. Oh, Maria. Oh, so he was delivering the paper and then and he saw the ripped headlines. from the headlines. So that would have hit him hard. And also it was just like being right at the portal of information, the fact that he had that newsprint in his fingertips. Imagine how profound and poignant it would have been for a little 
13-year-old Dom McLean to be holding this information in his hands, like newsprint on his fingertips, and realizing that the world was not going to be the same. Yeah, absolutely, Casey. And I think a lot of us feel that way about our musical heroes. And there is, of course, a crowd podcast all about this. It's called Death of a Rockstar, and we hope that it's narrative storytelling at its most immersive. There's episodes about Jim Morrison, about Whitney Houston, about Otis Redding, about Keith Moon, Janis Joplin, and there is one about Buddy Holly. Plus, you might want to know, listeners, that our resident writer and master of the pen, Tom Fordyce, even wrote some of them. So give it a listen, search Death of a Rockstar and subscribe. And before we go, a little elbow in the ribs. Uh, a reminder about the merchandise competition we talked about at the start. Um, Casey, where are we going next week? Slap on your toilet brush helmets and lace up your sandals and get into those chariots because it's time for Ben-Hur. What a film, Katie. I mean, it's very, very long. Uh, Charlton Heston is possibly questionable in it, but oh my, the drama. The drama, the drama, the drama, and four hours of my life I'll never get back again. Right, let's watch it. We'll see you next time. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creo so, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. I'm Alison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.